Would you please stand as we read God's word together? And we're going to read verse 20 through 28, so 29 on, that last paragraph that's printed, uh, we're going to not read that portion. Hear now God's word. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting in the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat free, go free in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. We are considering in this sermon series how the cross works. That's a uh, more reasonable way to, to approach what is known in theology as theories of the atonement. When we talk about theories of the atonement, we're asking how does the cross actually work? Now, that's an important question given that at the cross... We believe that is where our redemption is affected, where we are actually saved. We also believe that the cross, in some way, is the example or the paradigm of how we are called to live. Jesus calls us to pick up our cross and to follow him. He calls us to lay down our lives in the way he has laid down our life. So the cross, understanding how it works, is a very big deal. You really don't understand Christianity unless you have a handle on how the cross works. Now, you might think, well, that should be a pretty easy question to wrestle with until you start reading the Bible and you realize that in the New Testament they've talked about the effectiveness of the cross and how it works in many different ways, many different metaphors. They've approached it from different angles. And so we've been trying to appreciate those various angles in the past few weeks. On the first week we considered Christus Victor, which is the idea that Jesus, uh, the cross is effective because Jesus defeats Satan and the powers. Then we considered that uh, Jesus is our substitution, not only in physical death, but in going to hell on our behalf. Last week, which was week three, we considered the healing lens that sin is a sickness. And as Jesus comes and dies on the cross, that poison is poured out on him and we are healed. And today, we're considering something that is referred to as uh, the scapegoat theory. Now, by this point, you're probably picking up on a couple of uh, thematic elements. One is that all of the theories touch another theory, right? They aren't easily distinguishable, and I don't think they're intended to be. Uh, 
You may have also noticed that each of the theory is oriented around a particular character or, or, or person in the equation of sin being remedied. So if we took Christus Victor, you're kind of asking, what does the cross do to Satan and the powers? If you take uh, penal substitution, you're asking, what does the cross do for God? And if you take the healing view and today the scapegoat view, you're asking, what does the cross do for humanity? Now, something that theologians like to discuss, and we're going to uh, we'll touch base on as we conclude the sermon series, is can we or should we talk about the atonement or how the cross works through one particular lens, which informs all the others, or should we talk about it kind of as a mosaic in which each stone is important and all the stones together make a more complete picture of the atonement? We're not there yet, but you, you may have been wondering, well, for all these views, which one do I rely on? Right? Which one should I turn to? Which one should inform me? And so we'll talk a little bit about how we understand the relationship and how we should view them together as we start to wind this down. But we still have yet another theory to consider, and that is the scapegoat theory. And the scapegoat theory holds that the cross is effective not only for everything that we've talked about, but because it, uh, it's a little bit hard to summarize very succinctly, but the notion is it over, overrides or overcomes the matrix of sin. Right? The Bible says in many places that we have the propensity to live in sin as fallen creatures in a fallen world. And there are reasons for that, reasons that are beyond us, reasons that we don't even necessarily understand that affect us and press us towards sin. And what the scapegoat theory says is the power of that matrix, the power of sin, is, uh, is pulled out from under it as Jesus goes to the cross. So to try to, to get a handle on this, we need to consider several things. This may be, well, I won't say that. So the first thing we need to consider is where the idea of scapegoat comes from, which is Leviticus 16, and that'll be considering the Day of Atonement. Number two, we'll consider scapegoating. And as I tell you that, I want you to make a, just a note to yourself. You might, at times you might be a little confused because scapegoat is both a noun and a verb. It's a noun in the sense that it's the object upon which we place something, blame or guilt, but it's also a verb in that I can engage in the activity of scapegoating. Right? And we're going to talk about both, and I don't want you to be too confused. Third, we're going to talk about Jesus as the scapegoat, and lastly, uh, we're going to talk about living beyond scapegoating. So if that was a little bit confusing, there is actually a, a method to our madness this morning. Right? We have to understand the Day of Atonement, which is where the scapegoat starts. Right? Then we're going to look at scapegoating. Jesus is the scapegoat. And then lastly, number four, living beyond scapegoating. Okay. Let's look at one of the more interesting passages. Well, all of the Old Testament is interesting, but Leviticus 16 is particularly peculiar. Uh, theologians don't necessarily know entirely what to do with it. Why is it? So, Leviticus 16 comes on the heels. You can't see it immediately in the text, but what has happened chronologically in the story of Leviticus is Aaron has just lost two sons. Nadab and Abihu were priests in the temple, and they have offered fire to the Lord that was outside the way God prescribed himself to be worshipped. They decided that they would worship God on their own terms, and as a result, God took their life. And so we move immediately from that to the story of the Day of Atonement which seems to be pointing up to Israel and us that sin is so pervasive and so big 
that it is something that always can't be understood and something must be put in place to handle sin that is beyond our comprehension. The way the Day of Atonement worked uh, was that God prescribes in Leviticus 16 a bull, a ram, and two goats. The bull and the ram are for Aaron and his own household. The bull is a sin offering and the ram is an offering to God. And that's typically how you engage the sacrificial system. You'd go in, you would choose an appropriate animal of sacrifice to handle the sin that you've committed, and then you would offer a sacrifice as a gift to God. Now what God then says is you need two goats for this special day, this day of atonement, which is still one of the high holy days in Judaism known as Yom Kippur. What God is saying is you need two goats and you're going to cast lots over the goats. And one goat is going to be chosen by lot to be a gift to Yahweh. And that goat will be sacrificed in the temple. The other goat, you're going to lay your hands over the goat and you're going to confess the sins which will be commuted onto the goat and the goat will be sent into the wilderness. Now, in two places, it says that that goat that is sent into the wilderness is sent to Azaziel. Right? Here's kind of some, a bit tricky part of Leviticus 16. It doesn't throw us for a loop, but just to be frank and straightforward, no one really knows quite what to do with Azaziel. Historically, it was simply translated as the goat that's sent out. In other words, as the scapegoat. So if you're reading the King James or have a King James version, Azaziel won't appear in your Bible. It will simply refer to the scapegoat. And that's where we get the phrase of scapegoating or the scapegoat. It originates from that older translation of Leviticus 16. Now that's probably not the case because the phrase to Azaziel is identical to the phrase to Yahweh or to the Lord God. right? And so it seems to be being sent to some entity but we really don't know what that entity is. And there are all kinds of theories. Uh, the Jews leading up to the time of Christ came up with all kinds of theories. There's a goat demon that eats the goats and this, uh, assuages the goat demon. Uh, it's, Azaziel is really just another name for Satan is another theory. And uh, it's a payment or some kind of atonement to Satan, right? The prince of this world until Jesus makes full atonement for our sins. Or some even thought that it was simply named the hill to which they led the goat and pushed it off the cliff, right? Because you don't want a goat that has all the sins of the people roaming around the wilderness and having a pretty good life, right? It kind of takes the point out of the ritual, so you have to make sure that the goat meets its death and you lead it to the cliff and kind of help it over. So all these were various theories. The point of the day, though, is quite clear. It's the notion that sin is so big that it has to be, um, there has to be a day that covers the sins that you won't remember to confess individually. And those sins have to be sent away from the people outside of the camp. Right? This is what sociologists would call a, an elimination ritual. Even theologians sometimes refer to this as an elimination ritual. It's the awareness that there's great brokenness and we somehow have to move this outside of our community uh, to somewhere different. Now, it's a little bit odd, just from the perspective of the Old Testament. You need to keep this in mind. God has already set up a sacrificial system that is intended to handle sin. Right? You sin, you go to the temple, you atone for your sin, you make a gift to God, you're in the clear and you leave. So why do we need this special day of atonement 
which is covering, you know, what sins are we talking about? And it seems to be pointing up to the people and to us, right, that the heart is so desperately wicked that there's sin that you will engage in and you won't even recognize it as sin. And that has to be confessed and sent out from amongst the people so that it won't consume you. You know, we get uh, hints of this at, at numerous different places, but a good place is James 4, in which the confession today was written from. James writes to the church, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. He goes on to talk about them being friends with the world. So even James recognizes, listen, you're living as the church, you're trying to live in faithfulness, but you're fighting and you're quarreling and there's divisiveness. Have you not stopped to think about why this is occurring in the body? Oh, well, it's because you're jealous and envious of one another. It's because you want the wrong thing and because you can't have the thing that you want, you punish other people. And this certainly was, of course, something happening within Israel, right? And so it's that kind of notion that, oh, I'm mad at this person and I might even be mad at them for a certain reason, but it's not the real reason. I don't even understand the real reason because uh, the author of Proverbs tells us that the heart is very difficult to discern. It's desperately wicked. Who can understand it? So we have a day in which sins that have been missed or sins which sinful energies which build it up within the people are placed upon the goat and the goat is sent out into the wilderness. Right? Now, in reading Leviticus 16, we're still kind of asking the question, why was this necessary with the sacrificial system? But we're also going to add something to that, which is this kind of ritual is ubiquitous, by which I mean it occurs everywhere in the ancient world. There is not an ancient culture without a scapegoating ritual, without a high holy day or a festival in which uh, sins were confessed and placed upon something, either animal and in some cases human, and then that animal or human was destroyed. And as a result of that destruction, the sins of the people were thought to be atoned for. Right? This is the notion of scapegoating. Now, why does this occur everywhere? Why does every ancient culture, right, and someone would argue every culture today, right, and now just to whet your appetite a little bit, when we think about scapegoating, right, think about the Holocaust. Think about the German ideas toward the Jews. Okay? Why does every culture and every place that to some extent practice scapegoating? Right? What is its nature and what are we trying to understand? What I, uh, I want you to think about is what's happening in this ritual and all rituals like it, but particularly as God is revealing himself in Leviticus 16 and giving this prescription to the people, what he's saying in part is, I am recognizing that there is a problem with sin that is not dealt with and we must have something in place that deals with it to some degree until it is dealt with finally, until the fullness of time comes. And this is because you are actually engaging in scapegoating all the time that we're creating a ritual of scapegoating. Okay. What do I mean uh, by that? Scapegoating, the kind that we engage in, a verb, is this notion that we are constantly looking at one another 
and in some cases being envious and desire of what another has or possesses or does or is. And so we imitate that. We try to possess what the other has. But in this possession, right, I possess, you possess, or we might look at some object out there and both want it. Think of two guys uh, focusing their gaze on the same girl. Right, this creates conflict, tension, aggression. And this builds up. Right? And it must have some place to go. And the place that will go in scapegoating is on a party that is innocent, right? but is somehow deemed to be guilty. Right? When we're talking about scapegoating, there are two aspects that you have to keep in mind. The, the scapegoat is actually innocent, and the people who are assigning the blame to the scapegoat don't know what they're doing. Okay. Now, I can see on many of your faces, this is a bit abstract, a bit ancient, so let's, let's get really down to the wire here. Right, imagine there are two friends in the church. They've been at Rockwell Press for a year. Beatrice and Gertrude are thick as thieves. Right? Now, they're thick as thieves and are friendly with one another, but there is an unspoken, ongoing competition between them. Right? When uh, Gertrude's husband takes her for a weekend away, Beatrice makes sure that her next vac vacation is pretty spectacular. And when Beatrice's son achieves something... Well, Gertrude makes sure to point out that her daughter has made similar achievements in the very near future. They have, while friends, they also imitate one another. They are envious of one another. This is part of what it means to be human and broken. They desire what the other has. And so there's somewhat of a friendly rivalry, but at times it can become a little bit more intense and even a little bit uncomfortable and they both feel awkward when the other achieves or when they make some, achieve, get something very notable. But they're kind of managing. But in walks one day to Rockwell Press, Matilda. And Matilda is some kind of number, right? Walked right off the pages of Vogue. Her husband is dashing and charming. Their kids uh, seem as if they've been genetically engineered in every way, right? And so Beatrice and Gertrude suddenly look at Matilda and want to be Matilda's friend. So this complicates things. Not only are they competing with one another, but now they're competing to be friends with Matilda, and they're competing for what to match what Matilda has, right? Because that's the nature of imitation. It's the nature of desire. But Matilda's got it way, way too put together, right? Lots of money, right? Her 14-year-old is pre-med, right? Her 12-year-old just aced the SAT, Right, and her 10-year-old is being drafted by the Dallas Cowboys. You can't compete with this. And so one day they're at Bible study, and Matilda gets a little bit vulnerable. She tears up a bit. She says, listen, guys, my marriage isn't what you think it is. We struggle a lot, and my, my husband, he spends a lot of time, he has a very serious problem looking at things he shouldn't be looking at. And, of course, Beatrice and Gertrude are in the moment, oh, I'm so sorry. But inside, right, she bleeds. She's human. And so Beatrice and Gertrude start to, they would never use this word of celebrating, but they start to celebrate this fact and to discuss it. And of course, they're so moved for, on the behalf of Matilda, they said, we're going to pray for her. And so they start to pray for her, but they become very concerned for the integrity, the peace, and the purity of the church. And so they start to, as they're praying, they start to discuss, what should we do? What's our responsibility? So they decide, we better take this to 
the elders or to some wives of the elders and let this be known. And just to make sure that's a good decision, we better seek some wise counsel and talk to some other women in the church and make sure that what the direction we're going is a good direction. But now what has happened? All kinds of people know Matilda's business. Right? All under the guise of being holy and protecting the peace and purity of the church and sanctimonious. And so they go and this is how it plays out and the church has to deal with it. But Matilda's compromise and who knows if Matilda and her family will stay after being treated like that. But Beatrice and Gertrude don't really care Right? Because they really just want to be reestablished the way they were. The tension in their relationship and the tension in their own self-image with Matilda being present has become so acute that they would rather just see Matilda go. In other words, they would rather just see Matilda sacrificed. In other words, they would rather just make Matilda the scapegoat. You see how that plays out? The imitation and desire compete against one another. All right, and then until the tension rises to a point where they choose something that is innocent. Matilda was not, didn't deserve what befell her as a result of them talking, but for Beatrice and Gertrude, they justified it. They made it a holy act. They said, we are serving the church in this, right? So the victim's actually innocent, but Beatrice and Gertrude don't really know what they're doing. Right? In a very real way, they are not conscious of what they're doing. They're probably convinced that what they're doing is a good thing. So, now when we start to look at sin at that, you realize we need a day of atonement. Do we not? When we engage in sin in that fashion and it's so deceitful and sometimes hard to see, yeah, when we engage in this act of uh, scapegoating. Now we see scapegoating all over what you start to look for in the course of Scripture. Do you not? Yeah, I mean, from the beginning, right? our first parents are doing just fine until the third party enters the serpent and shows uh, them or makes them question, does God really love you? Why is he depriving this from you? And they look at him and they see that there's power withheld from them and authority withheld from them and they decide to move in that direction. But once they have actually given into that desire right, and are competing uh, to imitate what the serpent offers, right, they're caught in that, what do they do? The first thing Adam says, well, it's the woman's fault. Here's my scapegoat. The woman says, it's the serpent's fault. Here's my scapegoat. Right? The proper answer when God shows up for both of them was, Lord, have mercy, I have sinned. Neither one of those things came out of their mouth. It was, uh, she did it, and the serpent did it. And then we go to just the next generation, the first person born to, uh, on, on earthly soil, Cain and Abel. Abel's a shepherd. Cain is a farmer. Both bring sacrifices to the Lord. Both are appealing to God to, to worship him, to bless him, to be loved by him. And God does not favor Cain's sacrifice, undoubtedly because of the condition of his heart. And so uh, his sacrifice is rejected. Abel's is received. Oh, so what does Cain do? What, right? What? You look back on the story and say, Cain, why don't you just say, oh, there's some problem with my heart that needs to be dealt with. Let me try again. You know, God, I hear you. You're warning me sin is crouching at my door. Let me repent and move in a good direction. No, he says, what's my problem? Abel is my problem. If I kill Abel, I don't have a problem anymore. Abel becomes Cain's scapegoat. We've seen it in the story of Joseph and his brothers, right? 
12 brothers vying for the affection of their father. That affection is placed uh, disproportionately on Joseph, the beloved son. The other brothers are jealous. Joseph's obnoxious in all the love that he receives. And so the brothers, what do they decide to do? Right? We want to imitate, we desire the love that he receives from the father. How will we get that? Well, he is very obnoxious. He's the problem. He is responsible for this situation. We will put him to death, which was the original intent of the brothers, right, before selling him into slavery. Constantly, over and over again, in Leviticus 16 and uh, all the way through, we see, well, we see these stories, whether it's an individual or a small group of people like Joseph and his brothers, or an entire nation engaging in scapegoating, which leads to the necessity of a scapegoat ritual, which is Leviticus 16, right? that provides for the, the tension that is created in any community. Right? We already said that this is not an ancient phenomenon. It's a, it's, a, it's a human phenomenon, and you should not think of it solely as ancient. Right? It was the narrative of the Germans that we were once on top. We were once rich and powerful. We have lost everything as a result of World War I. Uh, what is our problem? And people started getting up and saying, well, I'll tell you what our problem is. Our problem is the peop- that we've become a nation that's no longer Germanic. We're mixed. Right? Our problem is, are Jews Germanic? Are gypsies Germanic? Well, if we take care of that, we'll be pure again. And then we'll be back on top. And so they scapegoated an entire people right, in order to promote themselves and to have what they desired, what they hoped for. Now, this, this human theme, this human condition, which we would certainly call sin, but would identify as this notion of scapegoating comes to the fore in Jesus. Because Jesus, of course, becomes the scapegoat for the entire world, and certainly for all of the people. Right? When Jesus dies on the cross, he's left utterly alone. No one has stood by his side. No one defends him. Everyone has deserted him and allows him to be put to death for the situation that has arisen. And Jesus, as he enters that and becomes the scapegoat, he totally, he is the virus, right, that corrupts the system of sin. Because A, he's innocent, but B, he has the power to say no. He has the power to call down legions of angels and to stop this at a moment's notice and to say no. I won't be your scapegoat. And he doesn't do either of those things. He is the innocent victim, right? The unblemished lamb who is led to the cross that our sins might be atoned for. And in this, we begin to realize, oh, Jesus had victory over all things and is now crowned at the right hand of God, not by engaging the very scapegoating mechanism that we always think will grant us power and authority, that will always make us better, that will always make us feel uh, good about ourselves. He shows us that the way to actually have victory in this life is to die. That the way to be successful is to hand oneself over willingly to the powers. And as a result, he blows up the entire thing. So what does it mean to live beyond that cycle of scapegoating on this side of the cross as we look to Christ? Right? John would say that there's no greater love than this that one laid down his life for his friends. And in John's epistle, he'll say that you are called in love to lay down your life for one another. Now, a call, a call to death 
doesn't necessarily initially seem very inviting. Until you begin to think about, oh, if I'm free from scapegoating, scapegoating begins with covetousness and desire, the intent to imitate what another has. So if scapegoating starts there and I don't need to participate in the scheme, that means that I don't need to imitate what another has. I'm actually free from going down that road. Why? Well, not least because you have everything you could possibly dream of or want of in Jesus Christ. Everything that you want or desire outside of Jesus is something that's not good for you. And yet, how often are our hearts placed upon those, those things, right? Every time I see one of these new Ford trucks drive by the Raptors, I think, I want one of those. I don't even know where that comes from. I don't do anything that requires a truck, right? As probably with most people in Rockwall, right? But I, and so, and I can't even tell you why this appeals to me, right? Have you ever sat and thought, why do I, why do I have a visceral reaction to a certain object? Why do I desire to possess X? So I couldn't tell you really why I desire to possess it. It doesn't, it doesn't make any logical sense whatsoever. Zero. Okay? But in that moment, that's the beginning of sin, right? So say my neighbor buys one, and then I get mad at my neighbor because he has what I want and I can't have or I deprive myself of, and he's just enjoying all of the fruit. You know, He gets to live his life and gets a raptor, and here am I serving the church, and I don't get a raptor. And, right? That's the beginning of sin. You go down that road. But instead, if I take a step back from that, I say, oh, God himself died on my behalf. I now have all of eternity and all of the riches of heaven and all of my sin taken care of. What do I care about a raptor for? What, what in the world? Why would that possess my attention for a second? And that's the beginning of freedom, right? To be free from that kind of desire to imitate and that covetousness is radical freedom to understand what we possess in Christ. And then to be, inevitably, you'll find yourself caught in a situation where you're competing with another. You'll feel the tension and the aggression and someone will be mad at you, right? And looking for, maybe even somebody wants to make you a scapegoat. What does it mean to be faithful to Jesus then and live in light of the cross? Sometimes it means to stand up and call for justice. Other times it means to let yourself be crucified. And there's great, not only great freedom in that, right? See, I don't need to play your game. You're going to be mad at me, and that's okay. Right? But realize that there's great power in that. God defeats right, Satan and sin and death by being crucified. When you allow yourself to bleed on behalf of another, right, what sin, what death cannot be overturned as a result of you conforming to the image of Christ in that way. There's probably not a, hardly a person in here that we cannot think of, A, someone of whom we are annoyed and covetous, covetous and desirous, and B, you may even be able to think of, these people are trying to make me a scapegoat, or I would like to make this person a scapegoat. And realize you do this all the time in your marriage, with your kids, right? You're... you're, you're Right? I'm going to pour out some kind of anger and dissolve the tension right? and hold you accountable even though you're innocent. Right? As you think about those people, who makes you mad? Or who do you feel the victim of? Right? Maybe justice is required. But maybe something would be radically new if you actually allowed yourself to die. Let's pray.
Our Father, we marvel that the world has been turned upside down by a gross and unexpected death uh, somewhere around 30 AD. That you would surprise uh, everyone and that you would defeat sin and Satan and death as a result of being the scapegoat is a story that we can hardly marvel. But would you challenge us to dare to believe that you are victorious through death, that you are victorious by being the willing scapegoat, and in that you, you mock sin. You mock it, you laugh at it, you call it ridiculous. And so would you help us to believe that even as we are accosted and offended and persecuted and, and made the scapegoat in certain situations or desire to make others the scapegoat, would you, would you challenge us to believe that we have received everything in you and as a result, we do not need to desire anything else? And would you help us to believe uh, that the world can be changed by those who are willing to bleed on behalf of others? We ask for your grace in it in Christ's name. Amen.